Uh, we're going to continue in our study through Genesis. We're coming into chapter 47 tonight. This is um, a really interesting portion of Genesis and the journey that Israel has. Israel being, of course, uh, really Abraham on through to all of his descendants that close out Genesis and lead us into Exodus. And that's what we're really looking at. We're looking at ultimately the history of God's people. We're looking at God's purposes being unfolded and accomplished throughout this book. And I, that's what I love about this. We're not getting necessarily deeply into theology, although everything is theological. There's a theological uh, uh, element to it. But we're looking at the life of God's people lived out. It's, this is what's so different about what we call historical narrative in Scripture. It's narrating the history that unfolded. And we get to see how God works sometimes behind the scenes in people's lives. And we can make correlations and relate to these things. And we could see their mistakes. And we can learn from their mistakes. And we can see God's faithfulness. And we can be encouraged by his faithfulness. So there's a lot that we're getting and gleaning from Genesis. And I, I do love this, just this whole portion of God's journey for them, uh, leading them even into Egypt through circumstances. And never forget, guys, that when you belong to the Lord, he's, he's involved in every detail. No circumstance is beyond his control. He's not absent from those circumstances. He's, he's, he's there with you in the boat, you know, going through the storm. And sometimes it's the circumstances themselves that God has ordained to use for us, to move us into those things that he has for us. Because if the circumstances didn't disrupt life enough to move us, we would not move. But what we learn from that, what we see from that is is just that God is faithful. And he's involved in all these things. And so, Joseph at this point Uh, which is kind of the focus of of tonight's study. It's Joseph administrating or leading through this nationwide famine that really struck the whole area. It was devastating, and God had foretold this was going to happen. If you remember, he spoke to Pharaoh in dreams, which which is interesting, right? Because Pharaoh is not necessarily a... uh, I mean, he's just a, he's a pagan leader, right? Probably, uh, a, I mean, he was a godless man in some ways. In other ways, maybe he was reverent. Certainly, we see him becoming more reverent as he's humbled by the ability Joseph has from God to interpret his dreams and to uh, speak into what is happening and help prepare Egypt for this long period of famine, and so God's been working, and, and there's so many things that God accomplishes with this. And so Joseph has now, because of his abilities, the wisdom that God gave him, he gave him favor with Pharaoh, favor over the people. Pharaoh raised him up and put him in places of, of high prominence to be his right-hand man. In fact, um, we're not even going to see Pharaoh showcase on the stage tonight in this incredible drama except for when Joseph really uh, brings his family in to meet Pharaoh and introduce them. Pharaoh has kicked back. He's letting Joseph administrate everything, which is a great, it's a great opportunity for him to you know, have Joseph there. 
at a time when there's such a, a crisis. Who wants to have to be in the front to lead at a crisis? So for Pharaoh, this is a, he's, getting, he's getting off kind of easy. Uh, but Joseph's cream is rising to the top as God is using him. So that's what we're going to do is we're going to look at, at this. There's kind of two main sections tonight, um, kind of how I see it broken up, verses 1 through uh, 19 and then 20 through the end of the chapter. And it's basically... Um, just really two main sections that we're going we're gonna to break down. So remember that uh, right before getting into chapter 47, last, our last study was chapter 46, and that gave us uh, the breakdown of, of Israel's family tree so that we would know who traveled, who, who were the people that God brought all the way into the land of Egypt when Jacob finally went to join Joseph and the rest of his, his children there. We have all of, the, all of the descendants of Jacob. Not that many, if you think about it, really, considering the fact that uh, from this group of people, God preserves them and multiplies them greatly to the point where they become a concern for future pharaohs, which is when, you know, the trouble starts. Uh, but we'll talk about that later. But from this very small beginning... God uh, forms a nation. In fact, this is the chapter where, where we're going to see Moses begins to refer to Jacob as Israel more, and sometimes even distinguishing between Israel the people and Jacob the individual. Even though Israel is God's given name to Jacob, we start to see this because it's the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abram, that from his seed he would make a great nation. So, let's read verses 1 through 6. We're, we're starting our first main section. This is where Pharaoh meets Joseph's, what I'm calling his shepherd family. Uh, and this is going to be first his, his brothers. So, verses 1 to 6. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds, and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. In other words, this is our family kind of lineage. We're, we're shepherds. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and your brothers dwell in the best of the land of Goshen. Sorry, hold on one second. Oh, I just jumped first, one verse back. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen, and if you know of any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. So notice immediately, right, God is giving favor to Joseph's family because he's already had favor with Joseph, and that family connection, God's just given them favor uh, with Pharaoh, and he establishes them in what would really be the best part of the land for 
uh, livestock so that they can pasture. Now, the famine is what has driven them to Egypt. Did you notice that he says all of their possessions? They came into the land with everything they have. I believe that this is important for a few reasons, but, but mainly it's preparing us to understand that there was nothing left behind outside of Egypt. They're coming in fully surrendered to what God is doing in these circumstances. They haven't left plan B behind. There's no family members waiting for them in the land of Canaan. They're all here and they're all in. And why that becomes important is because what happens in Egypt to them, that the entirety of Israel's future is right here in Egypt. And this makes it more significant when later God needs to deliver Israel out of Egypt. There was no Israel, uh, Israelis living outside the land that, oh, well, you know, they were the ones that God reestablished in the land. No, God fully delivered all of Israel completely out of uh, Egypt and reestablished them. That, that is a very miraculous deliverance from this future Pharaoh who does not know Joseph or the God of Israel. But he will encounter him, and we'll see that in our studies up ahead, not tonight. Now, what is it that, that brought this famine? This can feel somehow maybe very far removed from our very comfortable Western modern society where we don't really think about famines. We don't think about uh, droughts unless and until uh, you live in California and water restrictions begin and penalties begin because you're using too much water and they begin to ration things for you. You know, we don't really feel the full effects. And, and, and this is largely because we have become so uh, interdependent globally for the supply chain. Now what's happening in Europe is beginning to bring attention to uh, this connectivity, the complexity of the supply chain and how we have, uh, we've become globally reliant and dependent on other suppliers of grain, fuel, uh, fertilization, you, you would think that, you don't think about how all these things are really interconnected and interdependent until one of them is removed from the equation, and then you see, oh, wow, this is actually a very complex uh, supply chain that we have. In fact, the Europeans are really having a hard time, and they're getting ready for a, a really challenging winter time because Russia has cut off, because of political issues, they've cut off... Um, a lot of their gas export, and so many... Uh, Western European countries aren't getting their gas anymore from, from Russia. So this is very significant. Uh, Russia is, I think, I think between Russia and Ukraine, the two of them export 80% of the world's uh, grain and fertilizer for farming. And we import, we would import a lot of that fertilizer. That's not happening now. So what does that mean? Well, utilities go up in price. Fuel costs go up, which means all transportation increases, which means to deliver produce to a store is more costly, which means the prices go up for the food in the stores that we go to to buy the food. It's a chain reaction. And so we don't really think this, uh, you know, much about this sort of thing, but we could be very close to seeing major effects from this. And uh, we can take great encouragement tonight as we look at 
how God handles it and how God is faithful to his people. But, you know, think about that for a minute because we just go to the store for our food. We don't go to the field. I mean, the most that happens at my house when the, there's a drought and the sun is strong and it's very hot and I'm not watering my grass is the grass dies. It gets ugly. It turns yellow. You get these ugly yellow patches everywhere. And I don't really care enough about it to be concerned with it, to be honest with you. As far as I'm concerned, if it's dead, I don't have to cut it. I'm good. But the worst that can happen is that the grass dies and that's it. It looks ugly. Maybe my neighbors don't like it, but my livestock doesn't depend on it. I don't have livestock. My sheep don't have to mow the grass for me. I don't, I don't have any sheep, right? So we don't have these kinds of concerns. But listen, if, if there is a drought, which is primarily the cause of the famine here, if the rain doesn't fall, well, then the crops can't grow. Grass dies. There's no pastures for the sheep to graze. There's no grain to feed the people, right? Livestock begin to die. There's no water to drink or there's scarcity of water. These are all the things that could happen and do happen in times of drought. And so it's a very serious thing. And, and, and I want us to be aware of the fact that we are not impervious to the effects of this just because we live in the United States. We need to be humble about it and, and be Honestly, even praying about what's happening in the world and seeking the Lord for wisdom because, to be honest, it could actually be worse for us due to our greater dependence on others for what we take for granted here. We could be in a, in a, in a more difficult and challenging situation than um, those nations that have been doing this for a long time and, and they work the ground. And they're not necessarily as globally dependent as we are. I say this, brothers and sisters, because I think the comfort level that we have in the United States as Christians even has caused us to sometimes think of tribulation as something that happens either after we're out of here because we're too good for that or something that happens in other parts of the world but not here. And Tribulation is, we're not promised to not go through tribulation. We are promised to be spared of God's wrath, not the wrath of man and not, not from, from difficulty. God has people everywhere in the world, and there are people who love Jesus who are suffering under political tyranny, under circumstantial challenges, under great sicknesses, under different kinds of pandemics and issues and, and, and hunger, starvation. There are issues that people struggle with, and they are Christians. But we're far removed from that. So we don't think of these things. Really, we ought to be more aware and, and more cons <clears throat> sort of considerate of the fact that we are so greatly blessed. But with great blessing comes great stewardship. And... Just because it's easy or we have abundance doesn't mean that can't change tomorrow, and it doesn't mean that we have kind of a calling almost to being faithful and maybe even wiser than we have been because we've taken so much for granted. So this is a good time to begin, as Jesus said to his followers, he says, look, you, you look at the skies, you know what 
by looking at the sky tonight, if it's a red sky, you know what the weather is going to do tomorrow. We want to be people who have our eyes open to what's happening in the world because, listen, God has given us a lot of revelation pertaining to world events, which are theological. We can't separate politics entirely from Christianity. Uh, We never want to make the pulpit a podium for politics, but Christianity is involved, to some extent, it's connected to what's happening politically because we're talking about world leaders. The Antichrist is a world leader. Uh, It is through nations that God works and moves. And what he has told us will take place at a national level globally is political. And so we want to have our eyes open. We want to be seeking the Lord and have wisdom from above, even as Joseph received revelation from the Lord to be ready for this difficult seven years, through which God accomplished even more of his purposes, not only just saving people, but establishing Israel and revealing himself to the world through it. So we don't really fully know what kind of times we're coming into. But if we say that we believe we're in the last days, well, then the time is short, and we should expect things to be heating up. And I would say that they are. What encourages me through all of this is that with God, He makes a way. And we don't have to be caught off guard if we seek the Lord for wisdom and discernment. Let's stay close to Him. Let's hear His voice. And let's be practical people that, hey, if we need to prepare, let's have the oil for our lamps so our lamps don't go out. Amen? Because, listen, the world's going to be looking to people who have the wisdom of Joseph and the preparedness of someone who's heard from God to, to lead the way through difficult times. If Jesus tarries, guys, how do you think it's going to be in 10 years? I mean, look at what the last two years have been like. I'm ready. I'm ready for glory. I'm ready for heaven. I'm done. I don't need to be here any longer. Um, I just, you know, I, I obviously we, we think about our loved ones and those who don't know the Lord, and we want a better world for our kids to live in. So I, you know, I'm just looking to the Lord and trusting him through it. Verses 7 to 12, let's look at Joseph introducing his father to Pharaoh. Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? I wonder what, did Jacob like have leathery skin that he's just been through so much? He's, he's 130 years old at this point. He's, he's thought he lost his son Joseph already, which probably aged him tremendously. Uh, if you remember, that was his concern was that he would lose more of his sons or Benjamin and um, he would go to the grave early in life and, and mourning his, his children. This is, life has aged jo, uh, Jacob. So I kind of wonder, does, does, is Pharaoh perplexed? You know, what, what's, your, what's your life story, Jacob? So he asks him, how old are you? <clears throat> and Jacob said to Pharaoh, verse 9, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. He's speaking of his, his tribulation. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. 
And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. And, and bread is kind of synonymous with just uh, food. This was, he was making sure they were fed. So notice, they're being given land, they're being given food, and they're able to take possession of this land and, and just be well taken care of and, and situated. I love how we see God working. I think back for a moment to when Joseph was in prison and his world was falling apart. He had no idea what was coming ahead. I'm convinced, just like we would be, if that was us in his situation, we would be thinking, oh my, this is my lot in life. This is where I will die. I will live out the years of my life in this miserable prison cell. Um, uh, but you know, his heart never turned from the Lord in all of that. He trusted the Lord. He was diligent in what his hand could be set to. He made the best of the circumstances at the time as a man who feared God and loved God and wanted to honor God. And God rose, raised him up in prison, gave him favor, gave him leadership opportunities there, which led to finally him eventually being where he is today in a position where he's almost saving the world of the Middle East at this time. Because of God's work in his life, he's able to minister to his family and take care of his family. And Jacob and none of his brothers ever would have imagined any of this happening or taking place. Hindsight's always 2020. It's easy to look back over the years behind us and say, God's been faithful. God was faithful. Sometimes it's more challenging in the present to say, God is faithful or God will be faithful. But God has given his track record. He's proven himself that he's worth having faith in. So, Jacob enters the room, and there's this big power differential. This is kind of like, I mean, imagine you walking into the personal suite of the President of the United States. It's not very impressive right now for me, but... Imagine if that were impressive. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, imagine somebody impressive to you, okay? You're brought into the room, and you're having this interaction with somebody of great renown. I mean, world famous, world level, world power level of authority and um, intimidation. And your conversation starts off, asking you, how old are you? And then you, even though this person is in the seat of authority, you have this ability to call upon God, the God of heaven, for blessing on that individual. Something that he cannot, at this time, do for himself because he doesn't know this living God yet. So here's this great power differential, and here comes this 130-year-old Rattered and tattered shepherd uh, who's traveled quite a lot. And he calls upon Pharaoh to be blessed. 
calls upon God to bless Pharaoh uh, in this moment and for Pharaoh's future. And I think this is really interesting to me. All that Pharaoh had, all that Pharaoh was, Jacob, the simple man of faith who has been walking with God and learning and growing through his mistakes, growing and trusting more in God even through what he would call those evil, these, those evil days, those things that happened to him that were difficult, yet he never forsook the altar. And he's able to stand there before Pharaoh and say, may Yahweh, the God of my father Abraham, Isaac, my God, may he bless you. This is amazing to me. And by the way, the same God by whom Jacob blesses this Pharaoh will later judge future Pharaoh who hardens his heart against this living God despite all that God had shown to this nation and in their history books by the work he did through Joseph. Do you think future Pharaoh didn't know the story of Joseph and didn't know that God had interpreted the, the dreams of this particular Pharaoh and raised this man up named Joseph and it was through this simple guy who was a Hebrew from the land of Canaan that was, you know, started off being sold into slavery and then he was raised up and it was through this situation and this, this time that Egypt was spared. The world of that area was spared. He knew the stories. He was a proud and arrogant man. Who is your God? I don't know your God. I'm not going to fear him. I'm Pharaoh. Completely different countenance in this man and the future Pharaoh who did not know Joseph or his God and the salvation of Egypt. And so Jacob calls for blessing upon this Pharaoh, and he needs it. Man, this is a leader, a world leader in a time of crisis. And you know, this... This does challenge me because obviously my little joke before, I have my opinions of our leaders and I don't like what I see happening and I don't like many decisions, but ultimately, here's where you and I as believers can rest in the Lord. We can know that God is sovereign, he will not be mocked, number one. So that means that all the circumstances that are happening in the world are still under his purview. They're not out of control. They're exactly where he, he expects them to be. And he doesn't change. No matter what changes around us, he never changes. His arm is never shortened. So that's the first thing I need to remember. The second thing I need to remember is that God raises up the kings and he brings them down. And so whoever has been allowed to have authority from heaven, even as Jesus said to Pilate, is not... You know, you would have no authority over me if it were not granted to you from my Father in heaven. Listen, if we can have that perspective for the leaders of what we might consider to be a, a, a circus at times, of craziness, we have to trust that God has not just allowed it to happen, he's appointed them to that place. God is ultimately the world leader, and he's accomplishing his purposes and so, behind the scenes, this is the perspective, and therefore, we can pray for the leaders, which would do our hearts well, because if we find ourselves becoming bitter against our leaders, well, then our hearts are bitter, which is not okay. 
we are warned, beware lest the root of bitterness grow and take hold in our hearts. So we need to be people that are praying, and if we believe that God can change things, then let's pray for those people who we want to see changed. Let's pray for them. I, I'm speaking of this, I speak, I'm speaking from conviction tonight because I needed to hear this and see this, which is probably why God gave me chapter 47 tonight, so that I might be reminded and get my heart in the right place. Listen, bitterness for circumstances, for people, for relationships, for whatever it might be, it, it, it does us no good. So Jacob blesses this Pharaoh, and I just find that amazing, that the God of heaven is called upon by this simple man to, to give favor and help this Pharaoh lead at a time when it was so, so important. And so, did you notice, by the way, Jacob's perspective of life? When he answers him, he says, 130 years and few, they are few. <laughs> That's a lot of years to me, but for Jacob, he says, they're few. They've not attained to the years of those of my ancestors, and my days have been difficult. But he also said pilgrimage. This is how he views life. Life is a pilgrimage. It's a journey. This is not our destination. We haven't been born into this world to be here forever. This is a transitory place we are passing through. And I think it does our hearts well to also consider that how short life really is. And I'm becoming more and more, I've heard older people than me, people that were older than me in my younger years say this, and now I'm in the position they were in. I'm saying this to younger people. I'm saying life is short. You don't really understand how, life, how short life is until you get to this certain point when you can't take your foot off the gas pedal anymore. And it's like, all of a sudden, what's happening? I mean, my son's in his last year of school now. He's going to be in college next year if the Lord tarries and allows it. Um, I just turned 54. I'm like, where? I, I remember things in my 20s like it was just yesterday. But when I was younger, it seemed like the years crawled by. Can you relate? Can I get an amen? amen? Amen, right? You know what I'm talking about. If you've lived life a little while, if you've had some years under your belt, you understand what I'm talking about. My kids don't get that. Uh, they will one day if the Lord tarries. But to view life as short and to, and to have the, the, the perspective of Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It's wise to number our days and realize they are short. And to approach life from that perspective, we're just passing through. This world is not our home, and these bodies are just tents. We're going to put them away one day. They're going to, they're going to wear out. We're going to fold them up, put them away, and we will be raised again into what is our true home for eternity. Amen. I'm looking forward to that. Let's pick up in uh, verse 13. This is where we come to our second section, um, where Joseph leads the famine now. He's, he's leading, he's done introducing his family. He's going back to his administrative duties and leading the people through a crisis. And watch how he 
Watch how he does his job faithfully, by the way, for Pharaoh and for Egypt. And you, you may disagree. I'm going to try to get you to neutral ground tonight, depending on what side of the fence you're on, with how this whole thing unfolds and how, how Joseph handles it. But let's look at verse 13 to 19. Now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Now let me just, before we read on, let me color this a little bit for us. We're talking about a massive mob storming Pharaoh's facilities. And when they say, give us bread, they are rioting for food because they are desperate. That's what's happening here. This is kind of like what you would see on the television today, on the news, what's happening around the world as these riots are taking place. And they're, 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 they're going to the government and saying, do something about the situation. We need help. That's what Joseph is dealing with here. Then Joseph said, give your livestock and I will give you bread for your livestock. In other words, he's not going to be giving handouts for free here. And there's a reason why we'll talk about it in a moment. If the money is gone. Right? So if you have no money, just give us something of value and we will give you the grain and the food that you need. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. Uh, sorry, yes. And Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. What that, when that year had ended, they came to him the next year. Notice the progression of this. They just keep running out of, of, of resources and supplies. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, and by the way, this is another mob, not a cordial conversation. We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My, my Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? In other words, our land is going to perish too if you don't intervene. Buy us, in other words, employ us. Essentially, we'll become indebted to you and we'll work it off. Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Now, you might be wondering how in this time of drought can there be seed to uh, plant if this famine's happening. Well, yeah, Egypt relied largely on their, uh, their rivers, but they weren't impervious to, to famines and extreme drought. The rivers could only provide so much, but the land still needed to be uh, you know, irrigated or I should say watered by rainfall. That was really important. And of course, the rivers would become very low if there wasn't 
persistent rainfall. So uh, it, was a, it was a difficult situation. So this is a national crisis where these mobs are, you know, gathering to, uh, before Joseph. And I can only think of how thankful Pharaoh must have been in this moment to have Joseph there. This is just a sandstorm in, in Egypt, but it gives you the picture of what a dry and arid climate it is. Obviously, when, when something is wet, and sand is wet or moist, it's not going to do this. Uh, that only happens when it's very dry. So we can relate, in a sense, by what we see happening with these protests around the world as you know, food, fuel, and fertilizer is, coming, is being cut off from Russia. There's a ripple effect, and we might see this intensify in coming months. But Joseph had had the God-given wisdom, and he's continuing to execute upon that. He's not simply swayed by emotions in this, in this situation, and I believe there's a reason why. Uh, not only did he have the wisdom and foresight, the vision to prepare for this dark time of seven years, uh, but he's making good decisions for the future of both these people and Pharaoh and Egypt, which is his duty. And that could seem like a moral dilemma because you might look at this and think, man, um, I would have done things differently if I was Joseph. I would have just fed all the people. But let's stay tuned and watch what happens as things unfold. What I want to bring our attention to, it's kind of a twofold thing. Number one, uh, Joseph, we've probably heard this before, but Joseph is a type of Christ, of course, right? Because of the salvation that is brought to so many uh, through him. But also consider what would have happened or what could have happened if he had not risen up in faith to trust God and say, I'm going to interpret those dreams for Pharaoh. Just imagine if it didn't happen. That was the crucial moment. Actually, I'll go back one further. The crucial moment for him was probably each morning he woke up on the floor of a cold jail cell and thought it's not, you know, the temptation could have been there for him. It's not worth following Yahweh. I've heard stories about Yahweh, but where is he now? That was the Garden of Gethsemane moment, essentially, for Joseph, where the decision was made. And because of that decision to stay true to the Lord and hold on to what he knew to be true, despite circumstances and despite his feelings, that decision was the pivotal moment that led to everything else that unfolded for his future. And you and I are going to have those moments of opportunity where we can choose to say, we might ask ourselves the question, is it, is, it, is it worth it to really trust God and leave these things into his control, or should I take up the ropes, the reins, and take control? Or maybe turn against him in bitterness and frustration and anger because he didn't do things the way I wanted them to be done. I could tell you I've been there more than once. You know... I remember, I won't get into the details, but I went through a very, very difficult time, my wife and I, years ago, probably about 18 years ago. It was a very, very difficult, dark time. We were in a deep, dark place. And I had one of those conversations with God where it wasn't, I was yelling at God, actually saying, 
I was challenging him on what I, what I knew his word said, but I didn't see him doing those things. At least not at that time and not in the way I thought they should be done. And I was shaking my fist to the Lord. I was literally screaming at the Lord upstairs in my apartment in Italy, basically calling him a liar in a sense, ultimately. And I remember getting out of that moment of just pouring out my heart to him. And two hours later, I went back to that same place of yelling at God, and I said, Lord, forgive me. (laughs) I'm so stupid. I know that you're faithful, and, and if this is what you've chosen for our lives, I don't like it, but I, we will trust you through it. And that's all that we can do. And I didn't know it, but in that moment earlier when I had been screaming at the Lord, the very thing I was complaining about had already been resolved. It was a big deal, this thing that I'm talking about. One day I'll share the story probably from the pulpit here, but it was a big deal, and it became a life-changing thing for us, for my wife and for me and and our family, what became a a family. And so I I just felt like a fool because I don't have God's 360-degree hologram to really understand all the things that are happening. The reality is God could have brought Joseph to where he is in any a number of ways. He could have brought him there to Pharaoh in a number of ways, but he chose to do it through betrayal of his brothers, unjust imprisonment, and then eventually interpretation of dreams and a leadership position in a pagan country, a pagan world superpower. Bizarre. I would not have done things that way. But God chose to do it that way. And consider if it had not happened this way, If he hadn't risen up in faith to interpret dreams, well, number one, we wouldn't have the same typology that we have with Joseph as a Christ of the Old Testament, but Pharaoh would not have had the opportunity to care for Egypt and the rest of that area of the world had Joseph not been there. Israel would not have had a place to go for food. What would have become of Israel? We have no idea. Israel would not have had the favor of this Pharaoh to establish them in this incredible place of Egypt and then later to do another miraculous work in bringing them out as a great multitude, which would become for us the textbook example of the the deliverance from sin. The Exodus is the greatest picture of deliverance from the bondage of sin. It is what we look at for the blood of the lamb on the the lentil of our doors, the door of our heart. It's amazing how God brought them out. The history of the world would, in effect, have been completely different if Joseph had not guarded his heart and his mind in those difficult times and had not risen up in faith when the moment came To say with confidence, is not God the interpreter of dreams? Does not God tell man what is in man's heart? Lastly, we're going to 
we're almost, we're making it to the end here, verse 20 to 26, Joseph makes some difficult decisions. Stay with me. Then Joseph brought, bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had, uh, uh, had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. So they still have to work the land. Verse 24, And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Consider this kind of a loan for you guys. Four-fifths shall be for you, your own, as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your households and as food for your lives, uh, for your little ones. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. It also seems that Israel was not required to do this same 20%. Um, they were given land, they were let, allowed to stay there, and they don't seem to have to do the same thing. So they seem exempt from this as well, which is interesting. But notice the executive decision that, that Joseph makes here to spare people and to prosper Egypt. You, you would wonder if, is, 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 it, is he being too harsh to require that they work for the grain and work the land and and give back to Pharaoh. It could seem that way. But when the people have nothing but land to give, no livestock, livestock, the only thing they have left to do is to work. And it's fair and it's a principle of creation that if a man does not work, he does not eat, right? We we know that for, for the church. But also... If you're thinking Joseph should have just given this freely to them, it would have crippled Egypt eventually, I believe. Without a healthy economy to carry on after the famine is over, and by the way, this has to continue for seven years. This is going on still for some time. All the people would suffer. It may have been and probably would have been worse in the end had he done it Differently, but this approach gives structure and fair exchange of services for food. Seems fair. Doesn't mean that they were forever enslaved in Egypt. It just, it's a fair exchange. And so Joseph establishes this basically a tax of sorts for 20%. And it is something that stayed with Egypt from then on, which is interesting to me because Egypt's uh, culture, society, the structure of this this period changed by Joseph's decision, and it stayed that way for the rest of their history until things really changed in modern times later, but it's just interesting. Now, let's wrap up verses 27 to 31. So Israel dwelt, notice, uh, speaking of the people here now, the nation. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, 
in the country of Goshen, and they, the people, had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly, even under those difficult circumstances. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, now Jacob's being called Israel. Notice the back and forth with the word. He called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh, which is how you make an oath, and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my father's You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. This was very important to them. This is what you call being gathered to to your people, gathered to your, your fathers. And he said, I will do as you have said. And then he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Notice what's happening here. This is a really succinct compact summary that's moving the narrative forward of what's happened in Egypt, what's happened with Israel, what's happening with Jacob, and how there's going to be more adventure to come as Jacob is brought back to be buried. This is a promise that Joseph makes, and he has to keep it. But we're also told that Israel is prospering here. Israel is settled in the land, and they are prospering. Now, he's essentially orchestrated, the Lord that is, all of these events for many, many purposes. But remember that he's about to show his great power and strength in a new way through this people who against all odds, and that's Israel I'm speaking about, who against all odds and against even all resistance, they will prosper And they will become almost uncontrollable, which is why they become uncontrollable in the sense that there's so many, because God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham that they would be as the sand of the sea, the stars of the sky. If you could count them, you could count Israel. He's multiplying them. It becomes a concern for for Egypt later, for Pharaoh. uh, And he fears this. And that's why he begins to take action against them. But think of this. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, that all these things Israel experienced were for our benefit, that we would learn from them. He speaks of this and says, it's for our admonition that these things happen. And so this is the value of the, what we call the historical narrative. It's not extremely theological like an epistle to the Ephesians would be, but what we're seeing is life lived out. Sometimes simply, sometimes complexly. But we're seeing God's faithfulness in real life situations. We're seeing real mistakes. And we're seeing God's favor even on his people during those mistakes. And I'm encouraged by that. So Israel, Jacob prepares for his departure and, and makes plans for his burial. Now this is the, we're going to see this later in chapter 49 Uh, when it's all said and done. But um, this is at Machpelah, uh, which is where his fathers and Leah were buried, if you remember. And so this is where he wants to be returned and joined to them. So next week, 
we're going to see Israel blesses Ephraim and Manasseh. This is one of the last few moments Jacob has alive with with us in the the narrative of of Genesis. So it's such a cool, amazing, real-life event that really brings a lot of things home for us, I think. A lot of good lessons for us. So let's pray, and we'll close out in worship with Mike's going to lead us in another song. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. It's amazing to look at this, Lord, and to be reminded that really there's so much to learn from history, and we're doomed if we don't really know what's happened in history because we can't gain strength and faith from what you've done in the past if we, don't, if we don't see it, if we don't understand it, if we don't know it. But Lord, even just to understand the events of the world and how history often repeats itself and how you've spoken to us through history and about history and about what the future will one day become as history, you've spoken to us about all these things. So Lord, we ask for wisdom. We ask that you would give us Teach us to to number our days that we would have a heart of wisdom. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to see life uh, even as Jacob does in in understanding that this is a pilgrimage we are journeying through. This is not our permanent home. We'll never be fully content here. We'll never be fully at rest here. But we're heading there, Lord. Even as Jacob journeyed to what was really essentially that promised land, yet there is another land, a rest that we are to enter in eternity with you. And God, our hearts cry out for that. We yearn for that now. Our souls are longing to be united with you, Lord, to dwell with you in in a kingdom where righteousness and justice dwell. A new heavens and a new earth where you Jesus are the leader. We look forward to that, Lord. So continue to teach us, Lord. Help us by your grace to stay close to you and in tune with what you're saying and what you're doing. We love you. Pray all this in Jesus' name.